Masechet Rosh Hashanah, Daf Lamed Aleph, a very fun and relevant Daf. We're going to be start, start talking about the Shireh Shel Yom uh, that we say at the end of Shacharit on each day and see the source for that. And then we're going to see all of the rest of the enactments of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai. Okay, so we're dealing with the Shir Shalyom because in the Mishnah previously, in the discussion previously, we we're talking about if they don't know if it's Rosh Hashanah or not. And then so in the morning, they would say the regular weekday Shir Shalyom and then Musaf, they, you know, when, once they found out, they would say the one for Rosh Hashanah. Thursday happens to be the same Mizmor of Thursday and of Rosh Hashanah. Okay, so since we were talking about that, now we're going to go right into it. So Tanya. Okay, so we're going to see two versions of this Baraita. This first one is in the name of Rabbi Akiva. On the first day, on Sunday, what Mizmor uh, of Tehillim did the Levim used to sing in the Bet HaMikdash? Mizmor 24, that to Hashem belongs uh, the world and everything in it. That's appropriate for Sunday because, after all, Sunday was the beginning of creation. Technically, Sunday light was created, but really, also, if you take the first pasuk as um, take that as a general uh, creation of everything in potential. And so even on Sunday, even though things weren't yet differentiated, uh, basically everything uh, that would will eventually be created was there on in some form on Sunday. So on Sunday, kana, kana can mean to buy. It can also mean to create, like kone shamayim ba'aretz. It uh, doesn't mean the creator, but uh, the buyer, but rather the creator. So Hashem created and also uh, transferred to man and Hashem is the ruler in the world. And so therefore, it's appropriate to say to God belongs everything and the land and everything in it. And that's good on Sunday, the beginning of creation. Basheni, uh, obviously, there are lots of other Mizmodim that talk about creation. It could have been other ones. So uh, the connections here between each uh, day and the, each Mizmod are not absolute. You could have found other 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 items, other Mizmodim. Uh, but we'll talk about it in a second. Um, which is all praise of Jerusalem. Because on that day, he separated his works. He separated the waters above and waters below and became king over them. And if in this Mizmod, it does, even though it's talking about Jerusalem, it says, so the capital of the king. Uh, Jerusalem is the capital of for, um, is the capital of the, of Israel, and that's where um, uh, Hashem dwells. And so, uh, that mastery over the splitting of the water is a is one manifestation of God's power as King. on Tuesday, um, because uh, and that mizmor is uh, part of it is talking about elim shofta haaretz tincha bechol hagoyim Hashem will um, have the uh, will have uh, the addressee inherit the land bnei sel inherit the land and will judge over the land and so on the third day in which land was revealed and separated from the ocean is appropriate to talk about this um, this one. Um, the word tebel means the world. It's, a, it's important not to pronounce it tebel, which means something terrible. So uh, the accent could accent mark could make a difference. I learned this the hard way when I was chazan one time as a teenager, and I said tebel, and uh, all the old men came and, uh, and rebuked me. So I remember that. I learned that the hard way. Okay, tebel. So talk about Hashem being a God of vengeance. Who's going to take vengeance against? Against idolaters who worship the sun and the moon that were created on the fourth day of creation. On Thursday, we say Mizmor 81. It says, sing aloud to Hashem, Hashem who is our strength. Well, on that day was created the fish and the birds who, who, um, who uh, praise God. There's two ways to understand this. One is that 
when human beings go look and look at all the amazing variety of species of birds and colors and songs, it's just overwhelming and awesome. And then human beings praise the creator. Uh, that would work for birds. Uh, fish are a little harder to appreciate than unless you have an aquarium, which they didn't have in those days. So um, another way, the second way to interpret this is that the very existence of the fish and the birds and all of the diversity and all of nature is itself a, a, a praise of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, uh, whether or not human beings are there to see it, right? If, uh, if there's something beautiful in the world and uh, without anyone to see it, is it still beautiful? So according to second interpretation, yes, they exist for itself. Uh, Rambam and Moreh Nebuchim uh, goes out of his way to say that not everything in the world was created for human beings. Some things are created just to exist because existing is better than not existing. And Hashem likes existence, so that by itself is a praise. Okay. On the Friday, we talk about Hashem being king because then he completed all the acts of creation. And once he's completed, then he became, then he uh, sat as king over them. And on uh, on Shabbat, we say that means more 92, um, because that is referring to a day that will be all Shabbat. That's talking about the future. Uh, at, the, at the end of days, it will be, there'll be no, no, no work and um, everything will be peaceful. So that's talking about a day of all Shabbat in the, at the end of days. Okay, so that's uh, for the first version of the Braita. And then explanation, but now we have a second one. Nechemiah has trouble with the first one because, according to that, the first six days are referring to the beginning of time of creation, but Shabbat is referring to the future. So it's not consistent. Why should six be talking about the past and then Shabbat be talking about the end of days? So Rabbi Nechemiah wants to smooth it out and say they're all talking about the days of creation, including Shabbat. So the first six actually are going to be the same. He's only going to change Shabbat, but let's read it through. The Sundays because Hashem created the world. On Monday because he separated the waters and became king. On the third day, Hashem separated the water from the earth and um, uh, so there'll be a place for people to gather on, uh, on Wednesday, creating the luminaries and people then would serve the luminaries and Hashem would, uh, repay them that punishment. Thursday, when the fish and birds that are praise, a praise to Hashem. On Friday, when he finished and became king. Sheshavat and Shab- uh, uh, the last day is more Shelium Shabbat is because Hashem rested on the last day and we rest. So it's talking about what happened at the time of creation, not in the time of the future. So they're all leveled out. Okay, good. Now regarding these two versions, we're going to relate these these two interpretations with another machloket. And they were there. These two versions will argue with what Rav Kinnat said. A very famous midrash, and I'll show you where, where this comes from. Um, it says that the world will exist for six thousand years, and then for one thousand years it will be destroyed. How do we know it will be destroyed? Because um, Hashem alone will be exalted on that day. Now, anytime you see the word day, that refers to a thousand years, right? Because Tehilim says, Ki elef shanim a thousand years in your eyes, Hashem, is like one day. So therefore, they take, uh, they're taking the, the days of creation as being symbolic for a thousand years in the course of history. Reminds me of the famous joke, a man comes and uh, meets God and says, uh, uh, God, how long is a million years for you? God says, just one minute. He says, well, how much is a million dollars? And God said, oh, it's nothing, just one cent. And God says, that's amazing. So he says, uh, you know, God, can I have a million dollars? And God says, sure, in just a minute. Okay, 
So when we deal with uh, divine time, right, everything is expanded. So according to this, because you have six days, uh, of which is a 6,000 years, and the last one is the 7,000th year, this can fit with the original, the Akiva, the first version that says six days of creation, and then Shabbat refers to the 1,000 years, that's at the end of days, uh, which in which things will be uh, will be empty. I don't know why everyone's looking forward to the end of days. It sounds pretty depressing that everything's going to be everything as we know it will be destroyed. Um, hopefully, this there's uh, there's some some good part of it too. Um, so Abaye says no. It's not. It won't be destroyed only for one thousand years, but rather two thousand years. The rest of this pasuk says. So you will, uh, after two days, you will revive us on the third day, meaning the third thousandth year. That's when there'll be a restart. According according to him, since the world will be destroyed for 2,000 years, there's no connection between the day of Shabbat and the 2,000 years. So this fits better with the second version here of Rabbi Nehemiah, where the, all, all the days are referring to the original days of creation. Because if Shabbat was referring to the future, the future would have to be two days. And so there's not two days here, but if you go back to the original uh, six, seven days of creation, then each is a thousand years, uh, then just the Shabbat is just about resting, not about the destruction in the future. Okay, that's the end of the discussion here, but there's, there's a lot packed in. And so just a quick... Um, Detour. The, this um, this beraita that we just mentioned is actually a mishnah in Masechet Tamid, and in this version it says Mizmor Shir Latid Lavo Yom Shekolo Shabbat Menucha Lechaya Olamim. So this uh, most likely is the an the original version that it is in fact referring to the time of the future. Now I think Rabbi Benechemia has a good point. Uh, which is that shouldn't all be the same, either all referring to the past or all the future. So I have a hypothesis that I'm still doing research on and working on, which is that all the Mizmor Shel Yom are actually not referring to the seven days of creation, because you see that in this, uh, in this Midrash, uh, the connections with the, with the verses and the days of creation are really loose, and you could have picked lots of other things. Um, but rather, my hypothesis is that they're all referring to the future, all referring, sorry, to the course of history. And it's tracing the 6,000 years of history uh, from the time when uh, mankind was developing to receiving the Torah, to the having a Bet HaMikdash, to destroying the Bet HaMikdash, and eventually coming back from exile, um, kind of tracing that, that curve until eventually getting to the times of Mashiach. And if you look through various Midrashim where these pesukim are quoted, um, I think uh, you can make a case um, according to that. Uh, this idea that the world is 7,000 years old uh, is actually quite an old idea. And during the second Bet HaMikdash, there were people writing apocalyptic writings, like thinking about the end of time. And one of the earliest Jewish books that are in existence Post-Tanakh is the book of Jubilees that says for a thousand years are like one in the testimony in heaven, of heaven. The book of Hanukh also has this idea. It was picked up by Christian writers, uh, but not only by them. You see that it became a source in the, in, in the, in the Talmud as well. Okay, so this is really fascinating. And uh, so it could be that these just happen to be the Mizmorim that were said by the Levi'im. Uh, at a certain time period, I think that this, there's a deeper symbolic meaning regarding the course of, uh, of, Jew- of human history and of Jewish history and uh, that mindset. Okay, a lot more to say about that, but we have to go on for now. During every every uh, public korban, there would be something said. So what about Musaf of Shabbat? What Mizmor was said? Amar Rav Anan Bar Rava Amar Rav Haziv lach. So the, uh, on each Shabbat, they would say a section of Ha'azinu. If you take Ha'azinu, you split it into six sections. And if you want to know where each section starts, uh, you start, hey, it would be for Ha'azinu, and then Zayin for Zechor, Yomot Olam, then Yarkivehu, uh, then Vayar, and the Lamed is Luleh, and the Nakaf is for Ki. Okay, so you can take these three, the six sections on the first Shabbat, 
uh, starting at some point, they would say Hazinu, um, those uh, Pasuk 1 till Pasuk 6. And then the next week on Shabbat, they would say from Pasuk 7 until uh, Pasuk 12 and so on. So each Shabbat for six Shabbatot, they would go through the cycle. After six Shabbatot, they would go back to the beginning and say Hazinu again. That was the Mizmor for Shabbat. Uh, interestingly, in the Dead Sea Scrolls also were found songs of the Sabbath sacrifice, even though they didn't have sacrifices in the Dead Sea sect. Uh, nevertheless, they composed songs, Thanksgiving songs, and you can, we have them today, you can, you can see them. So there is, um, they also had some idea that there are different um, songs said with the Musaf, but the rabbis say it was Hazinu. This has practical relevance when we read Hazinu today in Bet Knesset for Parashat Hazinu. We must split it up into these six uh, six parts. Um, you know, if you want to add, you have to add at the end. You can't change it around. Usually, for any other parasha, there's many ways one could uh, split up the, the the aliyot. We just generally try to uh, end it on a on a good note. For Hazino, it's really hard because the whole section in the middle is very negative about sin and punishment. Not easy to find a good note to stop on for every aliyah. So these are the standard aliyot, and one may not deviate from them. What about for the afternoon? Uh, uh, tamid, uh, afternoon tamid, what mizmor would they say on Shabbat? Uh, on one Shabbat, they would say the beginning of Az Yashir in Exodus 15, and then the next Shabbat, they would pick up in the middle and say, Micha the second half of Az Yashir, of, of Mizmod, um, of, of Shiratayam. And then on the third week, they would say the song of the well, Az Yashir, right? Ali Be'er. And so that was a three week cycle. And after three weeks, on the fourth week, they would go back to the beginning of Shiratayam and do the whole thing again. All right. Iba Yalehu question. Uh, when you say here that they say here these six things and then these three things, is it that every single Shabbat they would say the whole Ha'azinu and then, uh, th- sorry, would every Shabbat they would say all of this, they would say all three of these sections of Az Yashir, or is it a one Shabbat each and they'll th- go through a cycle? And the answer is the second. Explained in the Baraita that while the first goes to one cycle, in other words, when Hazinu goes to one cycle, and that's six weeks, the second, the Mincha, after Mincha ones of Shiratayam and Shirata Be'er, that you go through that cycle twice because only three there. So you have going uh, six Hazinu sections in, uh, for Musaf. And then three, and another th- again three regard in the afternoon. So you see from that that um, what they were saying only one section a week. All right, now Now we're going to talk about the movement of. Um, yeah, since we're talking about Rabban Yochanan and Zakai uh, and the fact that he made all these takanot when the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed and then they went to Yavne, we're going to be talking about lots of uh, traveling because of uh, exile. And so we have two sets of travels. One of them is that of the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah moved 10 times uh, during the course of the, of the destruction and, the, and leading up to the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. And we know that from scripture. And uh, in parallel to that, there were 10 stages of the exile of the Sanhedrin. And that is not found in the Pesukim, but rather we know it from tradition. So let's see these 10. And it's just very interesting about thinking about the, the parallel between Shekhinah and Sanhedrin. Um, uh, after all, Shekhinah is, is the force of justice and righteousness in the world. When people sin and are not righteous, Shekhinah cannot stay with them and has to leave. And the Sanhedrin, right, when, ten, when, when, uh, when judges come and sit and act together, Shekhinah is with them because they are working as emissaries as partners with that Shekhinah enacting justice, teaching righteousness in the world. So therefore, Shekhinah and Sanhedrin are actually 
parallel. When Sanhedrin is here, Shekhinah is also there. Okay, first we're going to list all 10, and then we're going to bring the Pesukim that prove it. Uh, so first it was the Shekhinah originally when the Mishkan was built, was um, between was on top of the Kaporet, between the Kiruvim, where Hashem would um, speak the, send the prophecy. And from there went to the Kiruv itself, uh, one one Kiruv, to the other, maybe from both to uh, to one, or in the King uh, Shilamos Bet Hamikdash, there were two sets of kiddurim, the small ones and big ones. Maybe we went from the lower ones to the upper ones that were farther away. And from there went to the threshold, the separation, the barrier between the inside and the outside of the Hechal. And from there went to the outer courtyard of the Bet Hamikdash, from the outer courtyard to the altar, which was outside, was Bech Legag, and from there went to the uh, to the roof, Megag Lachoma, and from the, the roof of the Bet HaMikdash to the wall of the of the Temple Mount, and from there to the city of Jerusalem, and from the city of Jerusalem to um, probably Had Hazetim, which is next door, and from there we went out to the wilderness, to exile, and from the ex- lands of exile, it went up back to heaven. Hashem says, I'm going back to my place, right? That's where I was to begin with. I came down to be with the people, but the people sinned, so Hashem is going back home. Now let's bring the Pesukim to prove it. So the three that have to do with the Kiruvim. Uh, Pesuk says, Hashem says, I will meet you, the Navi, there and speak to you from above the Kaporet. So that's where Shekhinah originally was. And then it says, Hashem flew on a Kerub and uh, uh, rode on a Kerub and flew. So that's now he's already on the Kerub and on his way out. And then the next Pasuk in Yechezkel says, he left the Kerub and went to the threshold of the house. And from there went, Shekhina uh, went to the courtyard and another pasuk in Yechezkel after the one before that said that the house was filled with God, with the cloud and the courtyard was full of the brightness of God's glory. So you see now Hashem is in the courtyard. This pasuk is from Amos. Amos is a lot earlier than Yechezkel. So the pasukim are not actually in chronological order, uh, but nevertheless, you could say Amos is talking, talking about the future um, and Yechezkel is living uh, during that time. But in any case, obviously, it has to go from inside to further outside. And so here it mentions being on, Hashem being on the Mizbeach. Mizbeach legag dichtib tob l'ashevet al pinat gag. This is now from Tehillim, uh, from, from Mishle. It's better to sit in the corner of, of a roof than to go into a dangerous place. So this is more, more allegorical. So this is now going on to the roof. Migag l'chomat dichtib ene Adonai nisab al chomat anach. Now back to Amos that Hashem is now on the wall. And then Hashem's voice calls out to the city. So he's now in the city. And now Hashem's, uh, the glory of Hashem, the Shekhinah, goes from the city and goes to the mountain, which is east of the city, and that refers to Har Hezetim, and uh, not back to Mishle again, better to be in the wilderness, uh, but um, again, referring to this uh, allegorically as referring to Shekhinah, going to the wilderness. And we end with the Pasuk that actually happened to be quoted in the short version also, that Hashem is going back to his place. Okay, so that's the 10 steps of Shekhinah leaving. And here's the parallel of Sanhedrin. Before that, um, the Shekhinah, why did it go in 10 steps? Why not just leave altogether? You know, obviously it's because Hashem does not want to leave. 
um, but is going one step and then, you know, maybe you'll come back. There's always a chance to do Teshuvah and maybe Shekhinah will come back. So this teaching says for six months, Shekhinah hung around in, with Israel in the desert. And this is maybe I'll make Teshuvah and maybe we can come back soon. I gave you a chance and they didn't take the chance. So now Shekhinah says, um, let their let them let them be lost, right? Uh, uh, they're 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 now going to be uh, left to their own devices. From Iov, the eyes of the wicked shall fail; they shall have no way to flee, and their hopes shall be the droopings of the soul. That's it; they have no more hope. Okay, so that's the end of the ten. Uh, travels of the Shekhinah corresponding to the 10 exiles of the Sanhedrin. And this is all from tradition. Originally it was also in the, in the Bet HaMikdash, right in the Chaser, there was a chamber of hewn stone. And that's where the Sanhedrin originally met. It went from there to one of the one of the other chambers that was uh, all around the Temple Mount, there were different stations, uh, shops, uh, uh, money changers. So it went there. And so that was already still on the Hadabait, but of lesser importance. From there went to Sea of Jerusalem, and from there went famously to Yavne. That's where, when the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed and Abban Yechaman Zakai was there. From there went up north to Usha. But from there went back to Yavne. And then went back to Usha again. Well, what's going on? Why do you keep going back and forth? Uh, well, anytime you see, we can have, a, we have a, a, a picture here. A Jerusalem and Yavne are both in the south in Judea. So, okay, went close by. However, uh, the Beit HaMikdash were destroyed in 70. In 130s was the Bar Kokhba revolt, which was a terrible failure. And because, as a result of the Bar Kokhba revolt, the Romans said, you know what? You're not allowed to live in Jerusalem or in Judea because when Jews live here, then you're going to just re- 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 uh, revolt again. So kick them out, and they had to go up north, and that's why all the rabbis from the times of the Moraim are um, almost all of them from the Galilee. So went up north to Usha. At some point in time, some of the next Roman emperors were a little bit more lenient to say, so it's okay, you can go back. And so they tried to go back to Yavne, but it didn't work. And the next emperor was mean, and he had to go back to Usha. So that explains the going back and forth. Another explanation is that it has to be 10, because we said the Shekhinah went 10 steps, so we have to find 10 steps. So um, even if it was like a temporary uh, visit back down to Yavne, we're going to count it here to uh, count up to 10. We'll see a second version that says only six in a second. Okay. So I went from place city to city in the Galilee. And this is actually just following the Nasi, the patriarch. He was the head of the Jewish community and uh, liaison to the Roman government. And he's also the head of the court. So wherever he lives, the court has to go to also. So for whatever reason, uh, each of the Nisim may have moved places. So whenever they move, the Sanhedrin also would move. And the last of them was Tiberia. And Tiberia is the deepest of all of them, meaning the Sanhedrin had the lowest status at that point to fulfill a pasuk in Yeshaya and brought down, you shall speak out of the ground. Now, the Biel Azad Omer, Shesh Galut, because this wasn't 10, it was only six. <laughs> For he has brought low, brought down those who dwelt high, the lofty city laying it low, laying it low to the ground, bring it to the dust. If you count every time in this pasuk that it says it went down, including down to the dust, you get six different verbs and nouns that say down, so that's uh, six of them. They don't necessarily disagree because there are, after all, six places. Um, he's just counting the cities themselves, not the going back and forth. Uh, don't despair because uh, when you're at the lowest, the good news is it can only go up from there. And so from there, where they will eventually uh, be redeemed as it says, this is the source for the stanza in the Chadodi, um, that shake yourself from, from, from dust and arise, 
um, and, uh, and, and come back. All right, so that's the that's a beautiful agada about the movement of the Sanhedrin and some uh, important historical information there as well. Amar next Mishnah. Amar Biyoshua ben Korcha. Ve'od zot itkin Rabban Yochanan mezakai shafilu rosh betin bechol makom shelo yehu ha'edim olchin ella limkom ha'vaad. And so now we have the next uh, enactment of of Rabban Yochanan mezakai that if the head of the betin was away on a trip. Then the uh, the witnesses who see a new moon, they don't have to go running after the uh, head of the betin to find where he is. He's on vacation. He's visiting. He's doing. He's going went for a business uh, trip. Rather, they can come to where the Sanhedrin, whatever wherever it is, if it's in Yavne, if it's in uh, Usha, um, because uh, that's a lot easier to have one place that they know they can go to. And the point is that even though generally the head of the Betin has to be there and has to be the one that says Mikudash. So you can't do it without him. That was the original law. But Yochaman Zakai made a takana and said, no, if he's away, then we don't need the, the head of the Betin. Whoever else is there, the rest of the Dayanim, they will uh, announce the Kodesh to be Mikudash to make it easier for the witnesses to come. Gemara, Hahi Iteta, a nice story. Uh, uh, it was a certain woman who was called to judgment before Amemad in Nehardea. Okay, Amemad was he was the, the, the chief rabbi there in Nehardea. And so, right, they had, he was uh, presiding over a court case for this woman. One time, Amemad went to Mechoza. And so wherever he is, that's where his betin convenes. However, she didn't want to travel far, right? That's uh, annoying to not only have to deal with the court, but now you have to spend time traveling. So she didn't go. And so Amemad wrote a, uh, a document against her, a document of excommunication. Piticha means like uh, to open. It's an invitation. It's a summons. Right, summons to come to the court with the threat that if you don't come, then you will uh, you will get excommunicated. Uh, so the point is that you can't have, can't have an excuse and say, "Oh, it's far away, I can't go." When the court moves, you have to go there also. This really follows up on the Sanhedrin moving around to each place based on wherever the the nasi was. So how can you do that? How can you just decide to move and now expect everybody to go to wherever you are? We just said in our Mishnah that even if the head of the Betin is away, that the witnesses can go to the normal place where the Sanhedrin is. And so too for you, well, you don't have a Sanhedrin, but the point is that you also, um, you have a regular place where your court convenes that you can only expect people to go there. You can't make them just go wherever you are. So there's a contradiction here. There's no, that Mishnah was only talking about witnesses that see the new moon. For that, we have a, we have a long-term uh, goal, which is to make sure that many, many witnesses will all come. And if they're going to come to one place and not know where it is and then have a wild goose chase, chase then the next time they're going to say, I don't know where the, where the head of the Betin is, you know, I'm not going to bother going at all. So for that reason, for Kiddush HaChodesh, we always make it in the same place. It doesn't matter if the head is away. But regarding personal court cases, we have a pasuk that says the borrower is a servant to the lender. So if the lender needs to collect his money and he calls the borrower to court, the borrower has to go wherever he's summoned. Right? The lender makes the makes the um, uh, decides the location of where the court will convene, and so the borrower or you know the uh, the defendant, uh, which in that story was the woman, does not have a right to say, "Oh, I don't want to go there." Right, wherever is that the jurisdiction uh, of the head of the betin or of the one making the suit, that's where the defendant has to go. Tenor banan and kohanim rashain la alot besanda lehen le duchan bezo echad mitesha takanoshit kin aban yochamem zakai. Okay, so we already saw 
um, uh, many of the uh, of the enactments of Zakai, but we want to see all of them. And so this is yet one more is that Kohanim uh, may go up to uh, Kohanim may not go up to uh, give their priestly blessing on the platform with their shoes on. Um, so they have to take their shoes off first. And this is one of the nine inst- uh, um, uh, enactments that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai made. So let's explain this one first. What's the reason why Kohanim have to take off their shoes at the time of Berkat Kohanim? Uh, so there's several explanations. One is that um, their shoes were dirty. And so it's not it's not respectful. People are going to see their shoes dirty. Like, you know, you go to... Uh, uh, you know, you go uh, to a nice house, a nice carpet. You take off your shoes first, and then you go in. So that's number one. Uh, uh, number two is that they're gonna have to, if their sh- their strap comes off, or they're they're gonna have to tie their shoes. And as they're going up, so then they're gonna be bending down, tying their shoes, and people are gonna look. It's like, how come is he ducking out of Birkat Kohanim? Maybe it's because he's not actually a good lineage. He's uh. He's a halal. He's unfit to be a kohen, and people will suspect the person. So no shoes at all. Okay, that seems kind of roundabout. I like the best explanation is that in the times of the Beit Hamikdash, on the Temple Mount, you're not allowed to wear shoes. It's a holy place, right? Like Moshe, take off your shoes. Even if those who go there uh, go up there today, you have to wear uh, non-leather shoes. And so that is a holy place. So obviously in the Bet HaMikdash, when they had Berkat Kohanim, nobody wore, the Kohanim did not wear shoes. They, they never wore shoes. And so therefore, this would make, make sense with the other, uh, the other enactments. Now that the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed, the Ban Yechamah still wants to remember some of the flavor of the Bet HaMikdash, draw from that holiness and do things even outside the Bet HaMikdash that were like that. And that's why he instituted that no shoes, Let's try to uh, remember the Beit HaMikdash in that way. Okay, that's beautiful. Um, nowadays, you see some Kohanim do take off their shoes, some don't. And uh, uh, partly it depends on whether they are doing Kohanim on the floor, in the regular same level as the rest of the Beit Knesset, in which case they can keep their shoes on. Or if they're going up some stairs to a platform uh, stage, then they should take off their shoes. Okay, so this was yet another one, and now let's count where how much we're, how many we're up to. So sheet the high pirka bechada de kama. So how many do we have so far? Well, we have six in this pedic, and one more that was in the first pedic. Let's see what they were in this pedic. We talked about uh, that you can blow the shofar on Shabbat in Yavne, that was Takana number one, that you take Lulav all seven days, not just on, um, not just uh, the first day, uh, outside the Bet HaMikdash. The third one was that Yom Hanif, the day that you bring the new grain, the whole day, you cannot start eating from the new grain. And the fourth one is that we can accept testimony from the entire day. There's no cutoff point before Mincha anymore. The fifth one is that the new, the witnesses, can uh, to the new moon go to the place of meeting and doesn't matter where the head of the betin is. That's what we just said. And now number six is that uh, should not be said with uh, sandals on. And so that's six. And now back in the first chapter of Masechet Rosh Hashanah, we have another one, the fact that the witnesses to the, to the, to the new moon can desecrate Shabbat only for Tishrei and Nisan. And the times of the Beit HaMikdash was for every month because they had the Korbanot. If there's no Korbanot, then you still do it, but only for those two months. Good. So now we're up to seven. Altogether, there are nine. So we need two more. Ve'idach. So here's, here's number eight. Okay, there is a law that someone who converts has to has to do various things. What are the things he has to do? Um, well, that uh, someone who converts has to go through the same experience that Bnei Israel did when they became a nation when they accepted the Torah, and so that includes Brit um, Milah and uh, going to the mikveh 
um, which B'nai Israel did, and you know, going through the through the Yamsuf, I guess was a kind of mass mikveh. But also, he said he'd cut the shoe, right? Uh, um, be, be become holy for the next three days before Matan Torah. And in addition, when they received the Torah, they made korbanot, and there was blood sprinkled on the on all of the people. Uh, in Berita Ganot at uh, in in Parashat Mishpatim, and so therefore every convert today, well, obviously for men we're going to do Berit Milah for everyone. Um, they have to immerse in the mikveh. However, what about a korban? How can someone convert after the Bet Hamikdash is destroyed? They can't bring a korban and they can't they can't uh, sprinkle with blood. So the original law is that a ger that converts after the Bet Hamikdash is destroyed has to take some money and put it aside. And with, with that money, eventually, when the Bet HaMikdash is built, they will take that quarter shekel, which is the amount that you need to buy a pair of doves, and then they will buy it uh, to, to complete the process. Even though they don't, they're still a complete convert because they can't do it, but they have to put that money aside. That was the original law until Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai came and he did away with this custom. Why? Because if you're going to put away a quarter shekel, all right, if you think the Bet HaMikdash is going to be built within 70 years, okay, so you can, you know, you can put it in a special place. But he seemed to know that it might be longer. It might be uh, 200 years. It might be 2,000 years. And what's going to happen with this money that's consecrated money? How's anybody going to keep track of it for so long? It's going to get lost. It's going to be mishandled. So therefore, the Baron Yochanan said, better not to separate the money at all. And so this was the eighth takana to stop that practice. And now the ninth is a machloket. Which one it is? So there's actually two more. V'idach piluta de Rab Papa ve'Rab Nachman bar Yitzchak. Rab Papa Amar Kerem Levai. Rab Nachman bar Yitzchak Amar Lashon Shel Zehori. So Machloket, what the ninth one is, Rab Papa says has to do with the fourth year uh, fruit, and Rab Nachman says it had to do with the strip of crimson on Yom Kippur. We're going to analyze each one. Rab Papa Amar Kerem Levai. The Tanya Kerem Levai Yaole Lirushalayim Halach Yom Lechol Sad. So um, where the fourth year uh, fruit from uh, grapevine is like a maser sheni, that you have to bring it to Jerusalem and eat it there. And um, they, uh, now, uh, you have to bring it to Jerusalem if you live within a one, dist- one day uh, walking distance. If you live farther than that, it's very hard to carry all of that to Jerusalem. So then you can redeem it for money and come and uh, and uh, ex- uh, and bring the money and then buy it in in Jerusalem. But if you live with one within uh, a walking distance of one day, you should bring the fruit. The reason for that is uh, so that Jerusalem will be decorated with lots of fruit. And so if that whole radius brings fruit in, right? Imagine how much there's going to be, and that will be so glorious and celebratory, and which is appropriate when the Beit Hamikdash was up. V'zoi techuma. What is what are those boundaries of a one day walking distance? Elat mina safon vakrabat mina darom lod min hamara viarden min hamizrach. We have a map here. Uh, some elat is not the elat that you know. That would be much more than a one day walking distance. It must be another place. The north and south are um, switched in some manuscripts. So uh, either elat akrabat here or it's here, and then to the west it's lod where the airport is now, but this was a very ancient city, and the Jordan River to the east. So anyone living within these boundaries must bring the actual fruit and cannot redeem. Now, that's the original law. Right, meaning technically... Uh, the original law, the original biblical law would be that they, these people can uh, redeem for money, but uh, the rabbis wanted them to uh, beautify Jerusalem and bring the actual fruit. Now, here's the story. Who lived east of Lod, meaning over here, so that's within a day's walk of Jerusalem, and he had a for, some fourth year. Uh, fruit, and he said, um, he didn't want to carry it all to Jerusalem. It's a lot of fruit, too hard to do. And so what he did is he made it hefker. 
It made of care for the poor, and the poor will take it, and they'll they'll bring it to Jerusalem. And so, because it was too difficult to do. The student said, "You don't have to do that. You can redeem it for money because your friends have already voted and permitted it. Your friends have voted and undid the previous the previous law that." within one day's journey, you have to bring the fruit. And they said, you don't have to do that anymore. So you know what? You don't have to let it, leave it to the poor. You can have take it yourself, redeem it for money, and then take it to Jerusalem and buy things there. So now this story just says, Chaverecha. But we're wondering, Man Chaverecha, who, is, who, who are these colleagues that did this? Could be, must be, Rabban Zakai. And that was now another Takana to make life easier after the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed because now, you don't have the pilgrimage of everyone coming in uh, for the holidays. So there's no point in doing this anymore. Okay, so that's option number one for the ninth enactment. And option number two is Rav Nachman by Yitzhak Amar. Lashon shel zehorit, the crimson wool on Yom Kippur, the Tanya Barishon Hayu Koshrin. Lashon shel zehorit, a petacholam mi bachutz. Hilbin, Hayu Semechin, Lo Hilbin, Hayu Atsevin. Right, since the Pasuk uh, says that even if your sins are, are deep as crimson, um, I will make them white. And so they did this uh, symbol, uh, took that symbol literally, and they would take a, uh, a string uh, that was red and put it outside of the ulam, of the entrance hall of the Bet HaMikdash. And if it turned white, they would all be joyous and say, see, our sins are atoned for. But if it did not turn white, they would be uh, sad. And so they didn't do uh, teshuva well enough. But people were so now all sad and the, the Kohanim didn't want them to be sad. So they made a takana that they would take this crimson and put it inside. And so that way people couldn't see it, right? The Kohanim who could go in, they would be able to look at it and then they could say the good news if there was good news, but uh, people wouldn't be so fixated on it. But even though they hid it inside, people would peek in and they would find out what it was and they still became sad uh, many years. So they decided to get it out of the Betimitash altogether and they put it on the goat that went out into the into the wilderness and tied half of it onto the rock and uh, half of it the, the rock near the cliff uh, and half of it on the goat itself. So then only that guy who was uh, who took it out all the way out there might see it, and everyone else would not know if it turned white or if it didn't turn white. And that way they could just be trustful and hope, like we do today, that Yom Kippur was successful, and that way they, they didn't get sad. Um, okay, so you have these bunch of takanot, and so uh, uh, sending the the, the the strip, getting rid of it from the Bet Hamikdash, um, that was what the ninth ordinance of Rabban Yochanan according to Rav Nachman Bar Okay, now last point: Why did they not agree with each other? Nachman Bar my tamala amar kera papa. How come he didn't agree with Rav Papa's opinion? Amar lach isa kadat about kerem levai. Isa kadat ech Rabban Yochanan because I, we know someone made an enactment that said you don't have to bring the Kerem uh, Revai, you don't have to bring the, the, the fruits by themselves. But in that story, it just says your colleagues. Now, who says that's referring to Rabban Yochanan Zakai? He wasn't a colleague of Rabbi Eliezer. Rabban Yochanan was Rabbi Eliezer's teacher. So why would they have called him? Your colleagues, so it sounds like it's talking about someone else. Other people could make takanot also, right? Rabohava, he was he was a teacher, not his colleague. Ve'idach, okay, what's the papa? How would he answer that? Kevan de tamidim havu Since they were to be Eliezer's students, it's not respectful for a student to tell their teacher your teacher said uh, said this kind of you know correcting correcting their teacher. Would not be uh, would not be appropriate, and uh, you know if I was uh, uh, speaking to Rav Lichtenstein and I would say to him, uh, "Oh, you know what, Rabbi Soloveitchik said this. That would be this your your teacher, Rabbi Soloveitchik said this." I'm contradicting him. That would kind of not not be respectful. And therefore, as students, they said, "Your colleague," because for the from the perspective of the students, uh, both are both are teachers, and so in that in that sense, they're colleagues. Okay, so that's how we could, could explain those words, colleagues.
Why did Papa agree with Rav Nachman Bayisrak's opinion that it has to do with the scarlet? String. Was there ever a uh, the, the the crimson? Did they have the crimson string at all that might have turned white during the lifetime of Rabbi Yochanan Zakai or during his active career? Here we get a little bio of Rabbi Yochanan. He lived 120 years, like Moshe Rabbeinu. For 40 years, he was involved in business. So then he could uh, make enough money and retire. In 40 years, he studied full time. And after 40 years, he acquired Torah. And then the last 40 years of his life, he uh, was a leader and taught Torah. There was another Braita that says even 40 years before the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed, this miracle never happened that the red turned into white. And so therefore, this whole thing would have been a moot point by then. It was only that some years it turns white and they're happy, then other years when it doesn't, they're not happy. And so now if we follow... Uh, his biography, um, uh, so only after the Bet Das was destroyed, that's when he made this ordinance. So this shows lived and taught Torah after the destruction. Okay, that's fine. But already 40 years before, right, even if it was like the uh, when he was 120 was the is when the Bet Das was destroyed, the last year of his life, he made the Takana. Yeah, but he was not teaching and leading for 40 years beforehand. And this whole issue was not relevant for those 40 years. The only time when he would have made this takana is when sometimes it turned white. And that would have to been have to been before during the time that he was either in business or when he was learning Torah. So when he was learning Torah, he wasn't authorized to go and make decisions. And so there could be no time when he would have been able to do this. So that's why the Papa doesn't like that answer. Ve'idach, and how about Nachman? How would he answer uh, defend himself? This couldn't even happen during the 40 middle years when he was studying. And so that for sure, those 40 years, some of them overlapped with the with the with the years before the 40 years before the Beit HaMikdash was destroyed, and uh, when sometimes it turned white. And even though he was only a student, nevertheless, uh, even a student says a good suggestion before his teacher, and then the teacher would um, say, oh, that's a good idea. And then they would make the Takana. And so even though at that point as a student, he didn't have the authority to make the Takana, nevertheless, we call it in his name because it was his suggestion that the, his teachers uh, accepted and made as a Takana. And so that, according to that, that would be the ninth Takana. So if you include that, if you include all of these, it'd actually be 10. There's even another one in Masechet Sota. So that would be 11. Um, but uh, the, 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 the number that we count is only nine. And so we can uh, look for inspiration of all these takanat of Rebbe Zakai and the vision that he had for the future um, to keep uh, halakha uh, relevant uh, for all times as we also, nevertheless, also remember the Bet HaMikdash. Baruch Adonai Amen ve'amen.